service was a little bit more enthusiastic, but that's okay. There it is. Good morning. Uh, it is a good morning to be together. Uh, good to be together under the tent, even though it's warm, thankful to be together to hear God's word and to be in fellowship together. Uh, if you're new this morning, we just want to extend a special welcome to you and say we are so glad to have you with us. We want you to know that at Grace, we are a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. And uh, even for those of us who've been around for a long time, that's always a good reminder that everything we do uh, angles towards that. So uh, this morning, I uh, just wanted to say again, thank you for uh, how faithfully uh, you've been giving over the past few months. And if you'd like to give this morning, there's some offering boxes in the back. You can give online uh, as well. And with that, I'll invite you to stand now as we begin our service by reading from God's Word. And we will read Psalm 113, Verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And Father, we come to you this morning desiring to do exactly that. We want to praise your name, and we know that you alone are the king of the universe. You are the only God, and so we come to you today humbled by your greatness and desiring to praise you. Lord, from the rising of the sun to its setting, your name alone is to be praised. So we ask that this morning you would turn our hearts towards you with love and affection and humility. Help us to see you for who you are. Lord, we, we long to worship you, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.
can separate us. Hell and death will not defeat us. He who gave his son to free us holds us in his love. The height nor death can separate us. Hell and death will not defeat us. He who gave his son to free us holds us in for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now. No love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Sing with joy now. Our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now. No love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God for us Amen You can actually take a seat right now Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. What a great day. It's so good to be back. We just got back with the family on Wednesday night from Lenore City, Tennessee, seeing Angela's folks, and wonderful time with family, but we sure missed you. And I want to give a, a few uh, encouragements to you, kind of an update of where we're at as a church. Nothing uh, hugely specific, but I just want to mention a few things that I think would be helpful and, and edifying. Uh, the first is as it relates to our times in the Word and prayer, it's just so important. And I just want to remind us all that on a daily basis, uh, to be in the Word, uh, to be in prayer, to, to be seeking the Lord, to be hearing His voice in the Word, and to be seeking to obey it. And just how important that is to our fellowship that we, we do these things individually and as families. And then when we get together, we do these same things as well. Second thing that's on my mind and on my heart is is as we bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, what a privilege that is. And in just a few moments, we're going to have six families up here that are bringing children to dedicate them to the Lord. They're saying, you know what? These children are gifts from God. Uh, these children, we want to, to raise them in the ways of Christ. We want to teach them the word. We want to pray with them. And just uh, being uh, very aware of that, but the fact that we have a part in that uh, together, that these families want to teach their kids the Word of God, and then we have a part in that as church. And so uh, rejoice together in all of that. Um, third thing I want to bring up is just about our fellowship as it relates to us being gracious and kind to one another as we uh, navigate these really tricky times that we live in. And I just want to tell you, there's nothing broken, nothing's, no big issues going on in the church but I just want to give uh, a pastoral you know, exhortation and encouragement to you um, as your pastor to, to be wise and to be loving and to assume the best of each other as you interact. Um, in matters of conscience, there's so many matters of conscience right now. 
We're not to pass judgment on one another, uh, but we are to be fully convinced in what we approve. We're to hold our convictions strongly and know that we will answer to God as we walk by faith. I also want to mention in that context, there are churches right now that we are very aligned with theologically and doctrinally that are making choices that we as a group of elders have chosen not to make yet. Like some churches are saying we're going to have all indoor services. And every local assembly uh, led by a plurality of elders needs to make these choices uh, for their church. Um, we don't feel like we're at the Acts 529 tipping point. You know, there they said, don't preach Jesus. And they're not telling us to not preach Christ or to not worship. But it is getting tough. It's getting tough because uh, there are so many pivots you have to make and so many adjustments. And uh, hence, we have a tent, which I absolutely love, by the way. I think it's amazing. Um, and I'll say this. I know that there, there might be overreach. There might be underreactions and overreactions and uh, politicizing of all sorts of things in the time in which we live. But this causes us to work harder as a church, and we love it because we are called to preach the gospel and to reach the world, to shepherd the flock and reach the world. And so I just want to say on behalf of our elders and our pastors, we love you. Uh, we care about you. Uh, my heart goes out to you. It really does. You're trying to provide for your families, and, and you're trying to take care of your families in this time. And I just want to mention this. Christians in churches are not the only people being inconvenienced right now. So keep your eyes open for people that you can encourage on your block, in the workplace, in other places. And I just want us as a church uh, to work very hard uh, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen? Amen to that. So right now I want to invite up six families with seven kids that are becoming to get dedicated. They're going to stand right up in, right here. And we're going to do something that actually through the years is a common practice of blessing among the people of God in both Old and New Testament periods. The statement of recognition on the part of parents that their children really belong to the Lord. And as Christians, we dedicate children with the same purpose in mind. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 27, it says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my position that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent or dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And we know that in Ephesians 6, verse 4, we are instructed to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, to teach them the word of God, to pray for and with them. And so right now there are these families that are going to uh, give a public expression of their faith and their commitment as parents who are stewarding uh, these beautiful young lives and they're pledged to do all they can as God gives them strength uh, to lead their children in the ways of Christ, to honor God in that and it's with these things in their hearts and minds that uh, these families come. So we have today up here, we have Ryan and Ellen Campbell bringing their son Anders Wade. We have Kyle and Becca Johnson bringing their daughter Olivia Rose. Matthew and Alyssa Ma bringing their daughter Everly Lauren. Uh, Landon and Shantae Martin bringing their daughter Aria Lene. Cody and Paige Skelly bringing their son Hudson Cody. And David and Nydia Zabo bringing their son Zachary Nolan and their daughter Isabella Claire. And so, uh, what I'm going to do is just ask these families to publicly declare and commit to some things that they've already 
committed to and declared, but doing it in front of us is, is just a really good and encouraging thing. So families, parents that are, that are right up here in front, uh, do you publicly affirm your personal faith in Jesus Christ and renew your dedication to him and his word and his church? And do you recognize that your children belong to God and have been born to glorify him? Yes. Uh, you'll pray daily for God's direction in your lives and the lives of your children. Teach your children the truths of God's word in your home, seeking to live those realities out on a daily basis. And teach the gospel to your children and mirror Christ's love to them, towards them, and hope that God will save them through faith in Christ. Absolutely. I know this is your heart's desire, and you can put it in all sorts of different words, but this is what you want. And I just want to say something to the church, uh, because we're not just observers, we're participators as we bring children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So I just want to uh, give you an opportunity as a church to acknowledge that you will do all you can as you interact with these families. Some of you know them very well. Uh, some of you are their family. Uh, we are family in Christ. And so as you encourage, that you will encourage them, that you'll help them as they teach their children, just say, yes, we will. Yeah. All right, well... Um, with that in mind, uh, we've given each family a Bible for their child, as well as a certificate, as well as a, a, um, as a uh, family worship Bible guide. I think that's the only thing you've gotten so far. But you're getting the rest. The rest is on its way because it's probably really, it's heavy. It's a big Bible. And it's a, uh, there they are right there because there's a lot of things to give out. And we're giving out a certificate just to remember this day by. And uh, Connor Hass is now going to come along and the dads are going to share a Bible verse for each one of the kids before we then we'll pray after that. Hello, my name is Ryan. This is my wife, Ellen, and this is Anders. And uh, the verse we have for him today is Philippians 4, verse 8. It says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any, sorry, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Hi there, everybody. My name is Kyle Johnson. This is my wife, Rebecca Johnson, and our little one, Olivia Rose Johnson. Uh, the Bible verse we chose to read today is Isaiah 54, 13. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. My name is Matthew. This is my wife, Alyssa, and our daughter, Everly. Everly, our hope and our prayer is that you would echo the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, my name is Landon. This is my wife, Shantae, and uh, little Aria. Uh, Aria, you want to share Colossians 1, starting verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will 
and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Good morning, my name is Cody Skelly, and this is my wife Paige and our son Hudson. Hudson, we chose the verse for you today, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Good morning, my name is David Sabo. This is my wife, um, Nydia, and my son, Zach, and my daughter, Isabella. Um, I have a few verses. Um, the first one is Psalms 1, 1 through 3. Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but in the delight in the Lord of, that delights in the, the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like the tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in the season, and its leaves that does not went, uh, wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Uh, the next one is Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up their wings like, an, like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for these families and these kids. And uh, what beautiful verses, right? Just pray the word over the kids and, and, uh, and bring them up in the ways of the Lord. What a privilege and what a, what a blessing from God. Well, let's pray together. Please join me now in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your gift of life. Thank you, Lord, that children are a gift from you. They are a heritage. Uh, they, we want to steward uh, the gifts you have given most appropriately, Lord. I pray for these families. Thank you for... Ryan and Ellen, and for Kyle and Becca, and Matthew and Alyssa, Landon and Shantae, and Cody and Paige, and David and Nydia. Lord, thank you for the children that you've blessed them with. Thank you for their hearts for you, their love for your word, and prayer, and your church, and the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that they deeply desire uh, to teach these beautiful kids your ways. We pray for Anders, and Olivia, and Everly, and Aria and Hudson and Zachary and Isabella, Lord, that they, uh, as they hear the word, it would take root in their hearts, Lord, that you would open their hearts in your perfect time uh, to believe the gospel and be saved, Lord. That is our desire, Lord. We pray for these families and the challenges that they will face, and as they bring these children up, Lord, may they be reminded of your good grace, your faithfulness, your mercy your kindness, your love. And thank you, Lord, that these children are blessed to be in the homes that you have placed them in. We pray, Lord, that you would lead and guide and protect and provide for these parents and children as they seek to serve you and bring glory to your name. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, God bless all of you. Isn't that a great thing to be a part of? 
Absolutely. Uh, our scripture reading this morning is going to come from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, if you'd like to turn there with me now. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, and once you've found that, you can stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. You may be seated. And in a moment, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. But before we do, just wanted to mention that this morning we are going to... Uh, uh, pray for in just a moment one of our missionary families, and that's uh, Misael and Yolanda Morelos, uh, serving in Tecate, Mexico, at an orphanage there. So we don't know exactly how uh, COVID has affected their ministry, but we're just going to pray uh, in a moment for them uh, and for the rest of our morning. So now let's um, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we thank you and praise you for what we've just witnessed and part, uh, been a part of. Lord, we thank you for uh, the blessing of children and, and specifically the blessing of children in the church. And Lord, we just uh, together long to see you raise up uh, those seven children to um, know you and to love you and to live lives of faithfulness before you. So, Lord, we uh, recognize our part in that and uh, we desire to live the kind of lives that would be godly examples and helps to them as they grow up. And Lord, we thank you also this morning, just in light of this passage that we've just read in Ecclesiastes, that you are the God who provides. You provide work for us to do, meaningful things for us to spend our days in, to bring glory to you. And yet, Lord, we know that so much of what we do is stained by sin, and especially the sin of envy. So this morning, Lord, we come to you together as a church, even just recognizing that this last week, so many of our motives have been impure, and we've wanted things for the wrong reasons, and we've desired to be better than others or, or have what they have. So, Lord, we confess those things to you and ask for your forgiveness this morning. And we ask that as we hear your word in a moment, you would, would bring uh, conviction and also encouragement to us as we fight to live for you alone. Lord, we pray for Misael and Yolanda this morning as well. Lord, we thank you for their faithfulness serving in the orphanage in Mexico. And we pray that you would continue to sustain them and encourage them through the difficulties that I'm sure have come with COVID. And Lord, we ask that you would do what only you can do through their ministry. Save the kids, cause them to know you, to trust Christ, so that uh, they would grow up to be faithful members of your church in Mexico and beyond. And then Lord, lastly, we just uh, thank you again for the chance to be gathered this morning. And we ask that your word would have its way in our hearts. Please conform us to the image of Christ so that we would be pleasing to you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. This anchor for my soul, this everlasting hope, your grace on which I stand. It's where my life begins, my future held within, your grace on which I stand. I stand, it will hold me to the end. 
Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have sent Jesus, the lamb that was slain to take away the sins of the world. And we thank you and praise you that we get to be a part of this story. God, that we get salvation and redemption by the blood of Christ, not because we earn it, but by the free gift of God. Father, would we know this, this lamb who was slain? Would we see him more clearly as we look at your word, as we worship, as we fellowship this morning? We ask all this, we pray all this by his blood and in his name. Amen. Leaders in Florence, Italy, once asked Italy's premier artist, Leonardo da Vinci, to submit sketches for murals for their grand hall. His sketches reflected his genius. They, they were brilliant. But the leaders also invited a young, unknown artist to submit some sketches. His name was Michelangelo. And while da Vinci's sketches were great, uh, Michelangelo's sketches were stunning. They were awestruck. They were all inspired by his sketches. And someone even said, Leonardo is getting old. He's losing his touch. Da Vinci couldn't get over Michelangelo eclipsing his fame. And so he was crushed by envy. And he spent the last years of his life just clouded with sadness and with sorrow. We all battle this unseen enemy, envy. If someone has what you want. Someone can do what you can't. Someone is blessed in a way you aren't. Envy wants what others have. I too often find myself envying the gifts of others and the attention they receive. Envy is poisonous. It ruins families. It, it kills. It harasses. It produces anger. It produces hatred. Envy rears its ugly head and you are tempted to despair, to compare, to compete to cheat, to cry, to lie. Envy motivated the first murder. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain is comparing his experience to Abel's. He kills his brother, murders him in cold blood. 1 John 3.12 tells us, Don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he do it? His deeds were evil, his brothers were righteous. And then envy just fell like an avalanche. And you get to Genesis 37, and here's Joseph's brothers hating him, conspiring to do away with him and destroy him. In Acts chapter 7, verse 9, tells us the patriarchs, jealous, envious of Joseph, 
sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. God warned about envy. The Ten Commandments round off with Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not cover any, covet anything of your neighbors. Envy kept surfacing throughout Israel's history. They always wanted what the other nations had. Envy even killed Christ. In Matthew 27, verse 18, Jesus knew that for envy they had delivered him over. And what you realize and what you've got to admit is that envy is a part of the fabric of our fallen nature. Envy ruins you unless you master it. You've got to get beyond envy. Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 6, just, just hits us right between the eyes. Ecclesiastes has been doing this, right? It's been hitting us right between the eyes. Bullseye hit, exposes the truth that there's nothing hidden from the eyes of God with whom we must give an account, we must reckon. And this is some life-altering truth in these three verses, if we will accept it. We have seen a lot of life-altering truth in Ecclesiastes so far. We are not in control. We cannot figure this out. Only God knows. Only God satisfies. In chapter 3, we read of appointed times and seasons that are under God's sovereign oversight, under his providential control. And then in chapter 4, Solomon starts addressing the concept of community. Uh, the idea of we, not me. That you are to live for God and others, not yourself. And isn't it true we're living in days that never has self-serving been so obvious? While we say that we care. Early in chapter 4, we saw in verses 1 through 3 that there are so many unanswered oppressions in the world and that life can get so crushing for people that death seems preferable. Even C.S. Lewis asked in his deepest pain, where is God? That we know that we serve a hidden, present, active God whose ways are hidden, but he is present and active in our lives. And he gives us good news that God Almighty comforts his people in community, that we are not to suffer oppression alone, but that we are uh, to look to the sovereign God together as our only hope. These are the things we've been seeing. And now uh, Solomon pivots in verses 4 through 6, and he begins to speak about envy. And he observes something. And what he observes is, is shocking, but not so surprising, that he says all acts are spoiled by envy. Everything everyone's doing is spoiled by envy, which also, by the way, is oppressive. In the context of oppression, it's oppressive. Look at verse 4. He says, I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor where you're comparing, where you're competing. It's me over we. It's, this is a brutally honest observation. Here's envy, one of, known as one of the seven deadly sins. 
It is sneaky. It is, it is subtle. Solomon is telling us it is at the root of so much of what we do on a daily basis. He says, oh, this also is vanity and striving after wind. It is brief. It is fleeting. It is short-lived. This unsatisfied envy that we wrestle with. He says in verse 4 that every toil and all skill comes from envy, which when you think about it, it sounds exaggerated, right? Doesn't it sound exaggerated? But it's not. It's not exaggerated. Just look around. I mean, you can see it by observing people. Our labor is laced with craving to outshine people or to not be outshone. There is selfish ambition. There are hidden motives that we deal with. Uh, we even pretend that we care for people while we take advantage of them. And so verses 5 and 6 are very, very crucial for our lives. They are very, very crucial for us to grasp what it means. Verses 5 and 6 show us three possible responses to your battle, to my battle, to our battle with envy. Three possible responses. Two of them are prohibited. One of them is preferred. And, the, and it's, it's given in the context of what we do with our hands, signifying our work. Three possible responses to our battle with envy. So the first response, I'm going to call it the lazy way. The lazy way. And it's the idea of folded hands. Folded hands. No hands working. Look at verse 5. It says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Literally, cannibalizes himself, ruins his life because of the folding of his hands. What does that mean? The fool here folds the hands, and the folding of the hands signifies sleep. Now, sleep is good, okay? You should get a lot of sleep, but this is the sleep of a lazy person where they lie on their bed and fold their hands as they sleep. This is Proverbs 6, verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from sleep? This is Proverbs 24, verses 33 and 34. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Poverty will come upon you like a robber. Now, this is not, lest you're worried right now, this is not hitting the snooze button a couple times in the morning. I do like that like almost every day. Even when I wake up without my alarm, I'm like, I'll wait till it goes off because I, I want to hit snooze and it's going to tell me when I need to actually go and get ready, right? It's not hitting the snooze button a couple times in the morning. It's not retiring from a lifetime of work. It's not those things. This is not going to work when you are supposed to be going to work. This is the person that opts out of the workforce and squanders the opportunity and makes no contribution to the common good and wants a handout. We see here that envy fosters laziness. Laziness. Where the person is unwilling to follow the, the good example of their neighbor's hardworking uh, effort. Now, the fool, and we see this in the Bible, the fool is not unintelligent, okay? It doesn't mean they don't know anything. It's like what the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. They could be the smartest person on the block, 
but they're a fool because they're morally warped. And this fool takes from others, they folds their hands, doesn't do any work, and they ooze out envy, and they resent what others gain from their hard work, and they want what they have without the work. It's a welfare mentality. Paul said, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Think about work. Work is not a curse. Work is a gift of God, a gracious gift from God to steward as you worship him on a daily basis. Colossians 3, 22 and 23 says, Whatever you do, do from your heart as for the Lord and not for men. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. This is the Christian's trajectory as it relates to work. You're serving the Lord as you do what you are called to do. But if you take the, the lazy way, it only hurts you, who was identified as the fool here, and it kills community. You're not just help hurting yourself, you're hurting your family, you're hurting others. Because envy that drives you to be lazy is essentially loveless. Why do I say that? Because 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 says, love does not envy, love is not jealous. In Hebrew, the, the word for envy is literally coming from a word meaning to burn. It's the, the idea of burning, like color in your face because of angry emotion. It's where you have this grudging disregard for good that others enjoy because of their hard work. Come, even the Latin word invidia comes from invidio, which means to look closely at someone with malicious intent. You're looking at them to do them harm. This is like Saul in 1 Samuel 18, where Saul hears singing. And, and he hears this. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. David wins, and Saul can't handle it. And so what does he do? He angrily eyes David from that moment on and tries to destroy him. Proverbs 27, verse 4 says, Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. Who can stand before envy? Who can stand before jealousy? And what you'll notice is that ungodly envy is friends with other sins as well. I mean, in Galatians 5.26, it says, let us not become conceited. Let us not provoke one another. Let us not envy one another. If you're the lazy one, you're wasting time trying to pull other people down. There's a story from Greece of a man who killed himself through envy. He didn't mean to, but he did, because it messes you up. His fellow citizens had put up a statue to honor the winner of the Olympic Games, and he was so envious of his rival that he would go out every night and try to push that statue over. Well, finally, he was able to budge it and get it off its pedestal, and it's teetering back and forth, and it falls on him and kills him. The envy shoots at other people and wounds itself. One person said it this way, no man is a complete failure until he begins disliking men who succeed. The first response that you and I could make to our battle with envy is to take the, the, the lazy way, to take the way of the handed, hands that are folded. You don't want to do that. It's going to mess you up. 
Now, the second response is also prohibited, and I'm going to call it the greedy way. The greedy way. Two handfuls. Not hands folded, but grabbing as much as you can with both hands. Look at verse 6. Uh, two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Here, it's like two fistfuls filled up. The idea of the fist indicates you, you cup your hands to get as much as you possibly can. Because envy fosters greediness. You want more and more. And you want more and more, and you're going to get it any way you can. This is, this is what happens when someone is overtaken by envy. Carlos Ruiz de Fon said it this way, envy is the religion of the mediocre. It comforts them, it soothes their worries, and finally rots their souls, allowing them to justify their meanness and their greed. This is the person that lives by a me-first brute strength and works frantically to please their false god. Envy is as destructive as oppressive power. Walt Kaiser put it this way, men can be as cruel and inhuman to each other in unnecessary competition as they can be in oppression. I know it's popular to criticize corporate greed and popular to uh, criticize political oppression and at the same time fail to recognize that envy starts in our hearts, that injustice starts in the heart. That envy motivates your drive to succeed too often. And envy gets you nowhere good. It's unhealthy. In Galatians 5.15, Paul says, Be careful. If you bite and devour one another, be careful that you do not consume one another. Because envy feeds on comparison. We're comparing ourselves with others and look what they got, I want what they have. Where you're unsatisfied with life when you conclude, well, everyone's got it better than me. It's all too common. I mean, take social media, for example. I mean, I know it's uh, low-hanging fruit, but let's talk about social media. Donna Frietis of Notre Dame spent years studying the effects of social media on the lives of American college students. She realized that there is one common theme standing out. The desire to appear happy. The importance of looking happy. Where you see and you consider your social media account your highlight reel of your life. You post only the best things. You post only the best experience and only the best outfits and only the best hair days. We do this. We stage our experiences. The other day I saw three people walk out of a store with three cups of icy goodness. And it was a really hot day. And all three of them, almost by instant reflex, spontaneously took out their phones at the same time. It was like this mirror effect. And they all took a picture of their cup before they even drank one one drop. I'm like, no one cares about your milkshake. It was choreographed. Well, you choreographed your life for show. 
So people will see how happy you are. You post happy things to look happy. But the problem is it boomerangs on you. It comes back to haunt you because you're not happy. You want to look happy all the time and you realize, I don't look happy all the time. Everyone thinks I'm happy all the time, but I'm miserable. You play this sad little comparison game. You and I all do it. 2 Corinthians 10.12 says, When you compare yourselves with one another, you're without understanding. Well, what we do is, is we compare the, the seemingly best of everyone else's lives with what we think is the worst of our life. And we've got this 24-7 coverage of other people's happiness. And we remain sad. If we're honest, we're there too often. We compare, we compete for houses and spouses and meals and deals and a, a, a cornucopia of other things. It's like we're auto-tuned to look happy. Or we're staged to look good and feel good about me. Not feel weak. And look better than you. Because greedy envy has to get more. And it's rotten on the inside. These verses are telling us, you can go the lazy way, fold the hands, opt out of the workforce, take handouts. Or you can go the greedy way, just go two handfuls every day. But there's a third response that's preferred. I'm going to call it the easy way, and it's the hardest way. I'm going to call it the easy way. It's just right, basically. It's one handful. Look again at verse 6. It's, it's one handful. It's like one hand working, one hand giving. Look at verse 6. It begins this way. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. You see that? Quietness, rest, peace, tranquility. That gets you beyond envy. It's a beautiful expression, handful of quietness. It really is. Uh, what it conveys is a realistic expectation on life and a settled peace in your soul. Just a handful of quietness. Does that mean that that's all you should do? Just do your job and just not worry about other people or justice or reaching out? No, of course not. That's another sermon. But this is about a handful of quietness uh, that's better it's the person who adopts the opposite attitude of laziness or greediness and the preeminence that those crave. It's the person, and I think you and I want to be this person, it's the person that's just happy to be alive. And, and you just want to serve God and help other people. That's really what we want. God provides a, a better rest. He provides quietness. You know, if someone's hardworking and full of integrity and helping others, they have no time for envy. Henrietta Mears put it this way, the man who keeps busy helping the man below him won't have time to envy the man above him. 
And there may not be anyone above him anyway. Like, you engage in helpful generosity. You're like, I just want to help and bless. This is what I want to do with my life. I just want to serve God's purposes. This is the alternative to the miserable way of life in verses 4 and 5. It's the person who says, you know what? I'm satisfied in God. So I'm going to work hard and be content and help others. And isn't it easy to think that this rest, this quietness, is really just a mirage? You're like, I want that, but I don't feel that. It, doesn't it feel like an elusive impossibility at times? Like, I don't know about that quietness. I'm working, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and I'm not, I'm not feeling the love. It's when you get to the point when you say, you know, I'm just going to enjoy what I've got. And what I don't have, I don't need it now. And I'm just going to live in tranquility because it's better than laziness and greed. When you get to that point, envy just dissipates. It kind of just vanishes. You know, Solomon said a lot of wise things. In Psalm 127, verse 3, Solomon says, it's vain for you to rise early, retire late, eat the bread of painful labor, because God gives to his beloved even in their sleep. We've got to learn through pain that this idea of quietness, this idea of even contentment, happens when you possess fewer things with a satisfying rest. Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, said this, the Christian has another way. Learn to find contentment by way of subtraction rather than addition. You think you have to attain what you want to be content. And what you accumulate becomes object of your desire. The Christian has another way. Bring your desires down to your possessions. G.K. Chesterton said it almost the same way. He said it this way. There's two ways to get enough. Accumulate more or desire less. Now, you could be lazy, you could be greedy, or you could take it easy, which is the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing to do is to rest under sovereignty of God, which isn't laziness, which isn't greediness, it's godliness. We purposely rest in God while you work hard in life. I think there's going to be several telltale signs if you adopt this third response, this mindset, this attitude on life, this approach to life that I'm calling the easy way, it's really the hard way. One hand working, one hand giving. Let me just give you three things that I think will really be telltale signs if you're living this way. If you're saying, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the, do I'm going to take the plunge. I'm, I'm going to stop being lazy. I'm going to stop being greedy. I'm going to go this way. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to repent of your envy. And you're going to keep doing it. The whole life of a Christian is one of repentance. You're going to realize the problem under the surface of your life is often envy 
but you've been blind to your true condition, I mean, think about it, how easy it is for us to slip into ways of thinking of others and relating to others in ways that are not helpful. I mean, you might hate someone. You might, you might have picked out something about them that you just don't like. And you don't realize that envy is at the root of it. You think that they think that they're smarter than you or better than you or more spiritual than you. They might be. Only God knows. You, you might think, well, they're happier than me. But when you go that way, you ruin yourself and you mess up fellowship. I know it all too well. We, we've all been there. You've got to repent of it. Philippians 2, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You see, your gospel witness depends upon you getting free from envy. Envy is at the root of idolatry. Colossians 3, 5, right after verse 4 that says Christ is our life, says that Christ gives you power to put to death what is earthly about you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and envy, which is idolatry. I mean, think about when you got caught up in envy. What you're saying is, others have things that I was supposed to get. God got it wrong. He should have given me more. He's not good. He can't be trusted. He doesn't orchestrate things providentially. God isn't enough. That's what you're saying when you're racked with envy. Envy communicates ingratitude for God's good gifts and unbelief in his loving providence. As if he doesn't exist, that's how you live. And it's almost like I want some other God. That's kind of how you live when you're racked with envy. I mean, think about it. Israel always wanted what the other nations had. So they turned to the gods of the other nations. And I think sometimes we get so messed up in our minds and our hearts that we, we think, you know what, I'm going to go see what another God has to offer. Jeremiah 17 tells us the heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked, sick. Who can understand it? And, and the Lord says, I understand your heart. I test the heart. I, I search the heart. I know the heart. So the humble turn from their sin of envy. They acknowledge the truth about themselves. They acknowledge the terrible sinfulness. When I repent of my envy, I'm saying... Lord, I'm messed up, and, and I, I need your, your cleansing and your forgiveness, your mercy and your grace. And, and it's the kind of person that, at the end of the day, if you're a Christian, you just say, I'm just happy to be saved. It's like Paul in 1 Timothy, in chapter 1, where he just says, you know what? I was the worst sinner of all, but God had mercy on my soul. I'm just happy to be saved. When you get to the point when life just beats out of you any source of self-sufficiency, when you understand how worse off you'd be if you weren't saved, God's grace, his grace in Christ is sufficient to remake you into the person God intends to remake you. Repentance just kills your envy. It's the best way to go. So I think a telltale sign will be you'll repent of your sin of envy. But there's something else 
and it has to do with others. It's we, not me. You will rejoice in others' successes. If you're free of envy, you'll rejoice in the successes of others. Now, any friend can share your sorrows and your failures, but a true friend can share your joy and your success. When a friend excels, think about it, it's so easy to feel envious, isn't it? You feel bad about yourself because something good happened to them. But when someone falls flat on their face, it's so easy to feel better about yourself. One person put it this way, for everyone who sincerely pities our misfortunes, there are a thousand who will sincerely hate our success. But those that are free from envy, they rejoice in the success of others. Now, healthy competition, that keeps you on your toes. But sinful envy, that keeps you awake at night. The envious resents others because their God-given gifts are superior. Uh, the comparison game wreaks havoc on your soul. You're either going to feel inferior all the time or superior all the time. And I, it's just not a competition. It's just not. I have to be reminded of this all the time. I've got a very competitive nature. I need to be reminded. I'm not competing against other people. I'm not competing against other pastors. I'm not competing against other churches. But just rejoice in God's goodness to others. I have a hard time doing that often. But if you don't do that, you're going to waste away in envy. As the Bible says, he who would destroy himself does. And Jesus says, I'm supposed to love you. Now what if I want what you have? What if I love you only to get something from you? I'm oppressing you at that point. One person put it this way, few people have the strength to honor a friend's success without envy. But the absence of envy shows out in your life that you will rejoice when others succeed, that you will show open-handed generosity, and you will have bandwidth to have tender-hearted empathy towards those in pain. You find your capacity to do the Christian life grows when you get free from envy. You repent of your envy, you rejoice in other successes. And one last one I'll give you is when you're free from envy, you're going to receive God's soul-satisfying promises. You're going to receive his promises and believe them and put them into your life. Think about it. The only lasting solution to our envy issue is a, a new affection for what God has given and what he has promised to give. The only remedy, Matthew McCullough put it this way in his book, Remember Death, he said, the only remedy is a heart with stronger love for what is ours through Jesus than for whatever we may or may not get in this life. Do this. Confront your envy with the promises of God. Let the promises of God correct you. Let the promises of God comfort you. I mean, even like, think about it. We've been talking about death a lot in Ecclesiastes, right? Living a light of dying. Let death awareness shake you. Awake from envy. Think about Solomon. He had no one to envy. He had it all. More pleasure, more wealth, more success than anyone. And you and I would be tempted to say, well, I would be happy if I had what he had. And Solomon is saying, no, no, no. No, no, no. Think again. No, think again. I had it all, and it was wind. I had it all, and it was all vanity because everyone dies. 
Thinking about death and the shortness of your life is like a palate cleanser preparing you for the sweet taste of the gospel and the freedom that Jesus offers. You just connect God's promises to your struggle with envy. Let the gospel clear the way for Jesus' promises to take their rightful place in your life, front and center. I mean, the gospel answers envy. You see it in Titus chapter 3. Verse 3, it says, We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, Titus 3, 4, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. It's speaking of believers who are trusting in the finished work of Christ, not because of works done by us in righteousness, according to his mercy, through Jesus Christ our Savior. So here's what a Christian does. We know we battle envy. We know every one of us battles envy. We hope in Christ while battling envy. That's what we do. We, we hope in Christ while battling envy. I mean, I, I care about you as a flock. The elders and pastors and I see you as a beloved group of people to shepherd and to love and to do life with. And you might be here today and you might say, I don't have a problem with envy. Just praise God for that and still cling to Christ. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. But if you are struggling with envy today, repent of it. Trust God's provision. I mean, confess it. Trust his promises. Cling to Christ. And the reason we have to cling to Christ is because only Jesus can fix us. We get so messed up. As believers, we get so messed up in life. Only Jesus can fix us. You know what the Christian life is? It's you and I letting go of all the false ideas we have about God one by one. The word of God, it cures your envy. I mean, 1 Peter 2 says, put away all malice, put away all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. By the way, those are plural nouns, envies. Put away all envies. And like newborn infants long for the pure milk, the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation because you have tasted that the Lord is good. What did Jesus say? In Matthew 11, he says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, you're just crushed under the load. You know who comes to Jesus? Those who are burdened by their sin, their spiritual bankruptcy and the weight of their sin. And I mean, we're so rebellious that without a sovereign spiritual rebirth, we're not going to ever admit our need. That's why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, right before he said, come to me, he said, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Salvation is a sovereign act of God. You've got divine election in verse 27 that goes with the free offer to all in verses 28 to 30. See, in Christ you find rest from your endless tries and fruitless tries to save yourself. You find a, a permanent rest in Christ, in God's grace apart from your works. It's promised. Where Jesus bears the burden for your sin at the cross, Jesus gets the glory. The, the answer to the problem you have with envy is to lean into Jesus' gentleness and humility. 
as well as his jealousy. As well as his jealousy. His perfect, holy envy and jealousy. That's the sweet spot there. The easy way is because of Jesus' easy yoke. Rest in his jealous perfections. In Psalm 79, verse 5, it says, Will your jealousy and envy burn like fire, O Lord? Oh, yes, it will. It is righteous, it is holy. When Jesus was cleansing the temple, in John chapter 2, verse 17, what is quoted is Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. The idea is that envy, jealousy, in the most holy way, will make Jesus make sure his house is pure. That's his primary concern. That's why James 4, 5 says, it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he, is it to no purpose? He, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. If you're a Christian today, Jesus' concern is his glory through your holiness and sanctification as he frees you from envy. Jesus, in all his sinless perfection, his indwelling presence that has no rival, he is your perfect hiding place. Take his easy yoke. He is your sufficiency. He is enough. Allie Beth Stuckey in her book, You're Not Enough, and That's Okay, says this. We're told the key to happiness is self-love. Instagram influencers, mommy bloggers, self-help gurus, even Christian teachers promise if we learn to love ourselves, we'll be successful, secure, complete. But the promise doesn't deliver. Instead of feeling fulfilled, our purpose of self-love traps us in an exhaustive cycle. As we strive for self-acceptance, we become addicted to self-improvement. We can't find satisfaction in ourselves because we are the problem. We are not enough. And that is okay because Christ is enough. And he gives you a generous rest. Take his easy yoke. Lord God, we thank you that the key to escaping our envy is pretty much to stop loving ourselves so much. To love you the most. To love Jesus the most. To find our joy in Christ. Not the lazy way, not the greedy way, the easy way of Christ. Lord, give us grace to choose wisely, to repent of our envy, to rejoice in others' successes, to, to receive your soul-satisfying promises, that we would go beyond envy, that we would have a better way, that we would look to Christ, and love you supremely, and, and then link up in Christ-centered ministry with one another, we, not me. Thank you, Lord, that you know how to get us beyond envy. Thank you that you went to the cross. And thank you, Lord, that the resulting amazement and reverence and worship causes us to be amazed at you because you are so amazing, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you shower us with mercy that overcomes envy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you satisfy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are enough. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand if you're able and join us as we close the service singing Christ our hope in life and death.